0: Hearing this music and not sure if you're listening to the right podcast, don't have a cow, man. This is still Locked on Heat, and our theme this week is going back to three different years in franchise history. You've just entered a time machine, taking you to 1990. Of course, in the future, you'll still be able to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify or Himalaya, and I'm still David Rommel. If you're listening to this in 2020, you're in luck, because today's blast from the past is brought to you by Built Bar, the best-tasting protein bar of any era. A little more detail on the time machine theme, our founder, Utah Jazz radio broadcaster extraordinaire David Locke, Pick three years seemingly at random, and I'll just go back in time to talk about your Miami Heat, what they look like, who was on the roster, just do something fun as we await the possibility of basketball being resumed at some point in 2020. The year 1990, well, it was in between the second and third seasons of the Miami Heat franchise. The team had started off the 88-89 and season, only winning 15 games that first year, Not very good, obviously. They had started off uh, with the NBA record as far as most consecutive losses and just a fairly uh, disjointed group being coached by Ron Rothstein, an expansion team very much needing an identity. A little different than I think what today's expansion teams would look like. You know, there have been some theories about adding an expansion team to Seattle or uh, possibly Nashville. You know, just sort of randomly Vegas, I think, is another location that's been discussed as a potential expansion team. But in the 80s, it just it seemed like a very different vibe. Now, the year 1990, I was not much of a basketball fan. I, In fact, I wasn't a basketball fan of any kind. I wasn't really old enough to appreciate the older era of players like Jordan, etc. I didn't really get into basketball for a few more years still. And the Heat weren't exactly the most exciting teams to follow. My dad actually had season tickets for the inaugural season and mostly was because, well, he grew up in New York City uh, after having emigrated from Cuba and he spent time there where he met my mom and, and he grew up watching the New York Knicks. Uh, the era that he really identified with the most was that team that was led by Dave DeBusher, uh, Cassie Russell, Walt Frazier, etc. They won a couple championships in the late 60s and early 70s, even Phil Jackson, the future head coach of the Chicago Bulls, played on that New York Knicks team. But he was a Knicks fan. Of course, he also kind of grew up watching Lou Alcindor, who later became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And then he became a fan of Dr. J and the Philadelphia 76ers, mostly having some kind of fandom loosely based on the Los Angeles Lakers. That was a team that I really saw him watch the most As I was a youngster, like watching him catch the tail end of the Showtime era, that's what I really remember. I didn't watch any of those games. And, of course, the NBA was a very different product back then. It wasn't on national television the way it is now. I'm sure you've probably heard about this by now. But even playoff games were on tape delay, if you can imagine what that was like. There was no NBA TV. There was no NBA League Pass or anything like that. And even playoff games would be broadcast locally in the West Coast if they were taking place in Los Angeles at the Forum. And then they would be recorded and played for an audience back on the East Coast after the nightly news at eleven o'clock, maybe even after uh, Johnny Carson and the Tonight Show. I mean, these are names that you probably don't aren't exactly familiar with. But it was a very very different era. You'd have some weekend games and stuff like that, but they weren't they weren't the kind of entertainment that that you used to now. They didn't have a clearly established superstar like Michael Jordan who would help the the league transcend into what we know it is now. And in 89 and 90, it was still a very rough product. At least the, the package on the floor, you had the Showtime era Lakers, you had the Celtics in Boston, of course. The Knicks were an okay team, not really a perennial contender or anything like that, and the Chicago Bulls weren't the Bulls at that point. Of course, the Eastern Conference champion were the Detroit Pistons. They went on to win the title in 89 and again in 1990, so the the two-peat was around this era there, and then Michael Jordan would eventually be able to get past that Detroit team. If you've seen The Last Dance, you know a little bit about what I'm talking about, but as far as the Heat were concerned, they were just a franchise that was just opening up here in South Florida. Most of the fan base as you can imagine, and even today, today I think you still see some of that. A lot of transplants. People, particularly like my dad, who maybe had grown up around the country and were now living in South Florida. They had a fandom and allegiance elsewhere. And for my dad, he just wanted to see Karina Abdul-Jabbar in his last season. And that's why he got season tickets for that first inaugural Miami Heat season. But they only won 15 games. It wasn't a very good team. They were young. They were plucky. They had some older veterans that were towards the tail end of their career. And that's why I think it would be a little different now. I think in today's... Environment, you could probably still convince a big time free agent if they're willing to take more money to join an expansion team, knowing that they'll probably continue to lose. I, I mean, it's hard to tell. Like, maybe an, a veteran who's already won a championship and doesn't care so much about his individual legacy, maybe he can go and transform basketball in an expansion. Uh, it'd be nice to see a team, a guy like Kevin Durant who started his career in Seattle, eventually go back to the the Sonics if they were able to expand there. That's just all a supposition. Not really what I'm talking about, but just kind of going down and, and thinking about what it was like to have an expansion team in South Florida. And yeah, there was a fan base. They weren't really sure. A lot of the players and coaches at that time kind of talk about what it was like to build the fandom they you know the the people that were coming to the old miami arena the american Airlines arena wasn't even a rumor at this point they were playing a giant pink building in downtown miami that was right by the metro Rail, a newly opened metro Rail station if i recall the Metrorail kind of came out sometime in the mid to late 80s and part of the appeal of having the miami arena as a location for the heat was that you could take the train downtown from any location and then just get off and walk to the arena Downtown Miami, even as it is today, not always the safest environment. You have some crime there. You have some homeless population that you know makes it less than appealing for fans. I guess at least having it in close proximity of the metro rail train station made it convenient for people from all over South Florida to get to the arena. And and the Miami Arena, I did watch games there. Uh, they were it was a you know it was a pretty good stadium. It was known for being a giant pink behemoth, and eventually it became uh, obsolete. And then the American Airlines Arena opened up a few years later. But 1989-90, to 90, that was the second season in franchise history. Not much of an improvement, actually. They only wound up going 18-64 and 64 that season, just a three-game improvement from the inaugural year. But in, 19, 18, and I'm sorry, in the 89 draft, the Heat had actually selected Glenn Rice out of the University of Michigan and Sherman Douglas out of the University of Syracuse. Douglas was a point guard who actually played with Ronnie Cycli and so there was some cohesion there there was some familiarity he was a good scorer, kind of what you would refer to as a bulldog for that point in time even with that era was transitioning to different kind of point guards you could still have a smaller point guard you had a guy like Tim Hardaway obviously who wanted playing for the Heat guys that could play around six feet six one Douglas was small stocky could get to the rim. He had a good floater at that point in time, something that wasn't really uh, a, a well-established part about any offensive repertoire. So if you had a floater game, you know, it was it was a, a strong offensive move that you could inc- incorporate into any kind of game action. Of course, Glenn Rice had won a championship with the Wolverines uh, and then was selected fifth overall by the the Miami Heat. The team's best player was Cycle. He was the starting center. He started 74 games in that second year from 89 to 90. Um, He played, I'm sorry, 74 games. He actually started 72 of them. I guess he was coming off the injured list at some point. Either way, he wound up improving so dramatically. He wound up winning the league's most improved player award. He averaged 16.6 points per game. He was shooting about 50% from the field overall. Not any kind of floor space or anything like that. It was a different time period. But he was a good active rebounder. Averaged over 10 rebounds per game. Not much of a passer. Again, Not that, that kind of versatility that you would see in today's game. But a good, solid overall center. I think he was limited athletically. He was long. Uh, a true 6'11", 7-footer type. Even at that point in time when the, the league was still, you know, using so many big-type centers. It was before Shaquille O'Neal, but you still had an older Kareem. Uh, you still had guys like Hakeem Olajuwon coming into his own, Patrick Ewing, David Robinson, those types. Those were your center. Moses Malone, I guess, was towards the tail end of his career as well. But for a guy like Cycle, he was able to incorporate some athleticism, some length, and some polish around the basket. He was known as, colloquially, the spin doctor. I think he was given that nickname by none other than Eric Reed. Um, you know, he was able to use some really nice footwork around the basket he had some good low post moves he you know i was looking some highlights because i just wanted to familiarize myself with a little bit more cycling's game even the highlights he looks a little choppy he never really looks perfectly smooth out there but he did put in the work after his rookie year where he you know, he averaged 10 points per game, was able to you know, inc- increase that pretty dramatically, that second scene, and was awarded. Either way, that still didn't translate to much victory, even with Glenn Rice on the roster. They still struggled. They still had uh, no identity, really, even under Rostein. But they were a fun bunch that would play hard, and they had some good team there. They had a young core, and that's where that kind of took them the next season. I'll get into that in the next segment. You're listening to Locked on Heat. If you've listened to the show over the last few weeks, you know I've been talking to you about protein bars specifically Built Bar, the best protein bar that I've ever had. I tried it for the first time a few weeks ago when they were delivering a box to all the hosts across the Lockdown Podcast Network and I got to tell you, I was absolutely blown away. Some protein bars just taste like chalk. They don't taste particularly good and the ones that do aren't good for you. But Built Bars, they taste like a candy bar and they've got the nutrients you're looking for. They've got 21 flavors so you can choose one that is appealing to you. They're all low calorie, low sugar, high protein and high fiber. So it's amazing, it's an amazing product that I'm sure you'll love and I highly recommend it. Everyone around the network says all the flavors are great. I recommend the banana chocolate cream. My wife likes the mint chocolate one. It's not a combination that I'm a fan of, but she swears by it, and they're just such a great snack. Again, it's easy to get her to like them because it's just a snack that's easy to go. On. When you're on the move, when you don't want to take time to cook or anything like that, you grab a protein bar. It fills you up. It gives you what you need, and you're ready to move on and face the day. And Right now, if you go to BuiltBar.com and you use a promo code LOCKEDON, you'll get $10 off your first order. They're easy to chew. They taste awesome, and they're good good. For you, so go to builtbar.com and use a promo code locked on for ten dollars off. A great tasting protein bar that's good for you, too.
2: The NBA playoffs are right around the corner, and Locked On NBA is here daily to keep you caught up with all the late season drama. Every Monday, Jackson Gatlin rounds up the three biggest stories around the league, helping to break down the NBA playoffs. Mark your calendars to listen to Locked On NBA every Monday to be up to date. Locked On NBA. Available on YouTube and wherever you get podcasts. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day.
1: You can't touch this. Look, man, you can't touch this. You better get a hype, boy, because you know you can't, you can't touch this. Ring the bell, school's back in. Break it down.
0: After having gone 18 and 64 during their second season as a franchise. You weren't quite sure what you were going to get out of this franchise moving forward. It was a good, fun group. They had potential, and they played hard. At the very least, while you don't really want to say that it was the same kind of culture that was synonymous with the Heat during the later decades, especially when Pat Riley joined the team in 95, you started to see some early seeds being planted there of what that team could be like. They they did play well. Glenn Rice had the most potential, I think, out of those young players, although Cycli was the team's best player. Rice was just such an electric scorer. I know this is a little personal. But I just remember Rice being such a fluid shooter. Probably my favorite shooter in in Heat history. And that's saying something, considering the fact that you've got Ray Allen there, you've got Jason Capono, James Jones, even Duncan Robinson, all of which have been prolific shooters. But something about Rice, and he just paired athleticism with a nice, smooth, easy stroke so well. I remember going to one of those games when he was with the, the Heat and watching him put up threes and just in pregame just going through that drill of shooting and just it was so mechanical and perfect and it was just like every shot went in i think he knocked down like 19 straight i remember going with my younger brother and just marveling at him just putting up shot after shot and just wondering when is it when is he going to miss he never did and it was just so phenomenal to watch his potential there and and i've always talked about that i was a little disturbed with Pat Riley when he eventually traded Glenn Rice. I know it was necessary in order for him to acquire Alonzo Mourning, and that's certainly a move that paid off very well for the Heat and for Mourning and and for Rice himself. But I I always really liked Rice's potential. My dad... Never quite a fan of Rice's game. The criticism, and again, I wasn't quite aware and following basketball enough to justify or, or verify if this was the case. He always thought that Rice was too much of a shooter. And it was that's kind of emblematic of of the kind of line of thinking at that point in time. Like that he needed to be more aggressive getting to the hoop and not rely on his outside shots so much. Of course, at that point in time, the three ball was so devalued. I remember uh, just recently I was listening to Danny Ainge, uh, a name that a lot of Heat fans don't like, as the general manager for the Boston Celtics. But when he was a player with the Portland Trailblazers and, the, of course, the Celtics and later on uh, the Phoenix Suns, he was a prolific shooter, a guy who could shoot the ball, but he just never really did. Uh, you know, who's was just... It was never asked of him to be able to stretch the floor. And and he talked about the the three-point shot not really being much of a consideration, and that was looked at as a somewhat bad shot. And I think that's what my dad's mentality was. When he saw Glenn Rice, as good a shooter as he was, he probably could have used his athleticism a little bit more effectively to get to the hoop and create shots for himself. You had a guy like Jordan... Uh, you know who was constantly using his quick first step and getting to the rim, drawing fouls, and, and Rice was kind of the opposite of that. And so I, I think that's what the the overall feeling about early Glenn Rice was that he was just a good, solid scorer, but maybe quote unquote soft. I don't necessarily agree. Thinking about it now, it was probably just, well, this is what his strength was. We should have leaned into that, you know. And I think that's probably a, a mistake that Rothstein made was that not, you know, letting Glenn just put up those shots. When you think about it, he could have been one of the first guys to put up 10 plus three-pointers a day, a, a game, rather, and, and he probably would have made 60% of those. I mean, I think that's realistic. He was just that good. And, uh, you know, it was just not something that a lot of teams knew how to scout or defend. And, and so he might have been even more prolific as a scorer if he had just been given a green light, something that nobody in the league had at that point in time. But again, there wasn't much success there. They did have, however, a good young core in Glenn Rice, Sherman Douglas as their point guard. That was their backcourt there with Kevin Edwards. He was also a guy who played a couple of years here with Miami. Uh, you know, he was a good two guard, somewhat unspectacular. I don't remember much about Edwards, and I'm sure some of you, maybe longtime fans probably remember him a little bit better than I do. I just, he never really resonated with me. Uh, he was just part of a different era. Grant Long he was the original take charge man the power forward there and, and Ronnie cyclia of course at the uh Uh, center position so that was the core of the group and then uh, 1990 they actually had a pretty solid draft they wound up drafting Willie Burton he was their two guard Um, they also took Alec Kessler and in a draft day day trade with the Sacramento Kings wound up acquiring Bimbo Coles who had a couple different stints in Miami and he was well aside from a great name a guy who you know played some good point guard and uh, he had some good years with the Heat never really a star by any stretch but a good solid point guard a guy who could handle the ball and, and you know just stretch the floor on occasion, get to the hoop, etc. But probably the guy who from that 1990 draft had the greatest impact for the Heat was Keith Askins, uh, the original three and D wing, I think, for the Miami Heat. They've had so much success from that position, not just Askins, but later on, James Posey, Dan Marley, on and on, just different guys who have filled that position. Shane Battier comes to mind. Guys that could just defend on the wing, and be able to stretch the floor a little bit. And that's what Keith's strengths were. He was a great hard-nosed defender. There's a story from Ron Rothstein where he talks about his undrafted rookie, Askins, addressing the team after a blowout loss and just ripping into guys. And he was just never scared of letting everybody know what he thought And it was a great pickup. He wound up having some real success here. He was one of the few carryovers from the earlier Heat teams to be able to withstand Pat Riley's changes to the team. When Pat Riley took over the roster, one of the few guys that he kept from the previous years was Askins because of his tenacity, because of his unselfishness, his willingness to do it all and be a hard worker. And so he was a great find there. That 1990 draft... Wound up having some really good players in it. Gary Payton. Derek Coleman was selected first overall out of Syracuse. He went up going to the New Jersey Nets and being an all-star, but not really a kind of generational player. Never made the, the Hall of Fame or anything like that. So Payton, Kendall Gill, uh, Tyrone Hill, Terry Mills, Dwayne Coswell, Cedric Ceballos, and Tony Smith. All those guys wound up taking in the 1990 draft. Played for the Heat at some point. Uh, Tyrone Hill made the all-star team with the Cleveland Cavaliers, and I'm not mistaken, and Then he actually finished his career for one last season with Miami. Gill came in uh, during the 2001-2002 era uh, when Alonzo was out with his kidney disease and not really much of a factor. And then Coswell was a backup center. Mills was kind of a, a floor-stretching big. Tony Smith, uh, the only reason why that name <laughs> kind of resonates with me is because he was one of those players the of the eight players available to Miami on one night when they were actually able to beat the 1997 Bulls team that wound up going 72 and 10. Uh, That was one of the 10 losses was to a very bad Miami Heat team, well, it wasn't a bad Miami Heat team, it was an undermanned Miami Heat team that had tr- made a trade to acquire, uh, I think, I can't recall now who it was, Tim Hardaway, I want to say? Maybe it was 96, then. Maybe it was the 96 team. They were, they were trying to acquire, they had traded a bunch of players in order to acquire Hardaway, and so they only had eight active players available. Tony Smith was one of those. He wound up starting that night. Of course, that game is best known for the Rex Chapman performance. He wound up being a, a very good competitor for the Miami as well, a guy who could stretch the floor and had some athleticism as well he's actually a participant in the slam dunk contest unfortunately even as they were kind of building around this group adding Burton Askins Cole etc the team still didn't succeed very much they wound up going just 24 and 58 in the 1990-91 season so only improving by nine games over the course of three seasons not really a great team and again not showing any kind of clear identity tenacious maybe but not a lot of talent not quite sure why it never all paired together. I don't know if it was necessarily bad decision-making. I don't know if you had better draft picks that could have been you know, plugged in there and changed the team. Maybe Rice just wasn't able to fulfill his potential with that current roster. Again, not having watched the team that closely, it's kind of hard for me to pick and choose what exactly went well or what didn't. But uh, unfortunately, again, they just never had much success. But uh, one thing that really stood out from that particular season is that in 1990, they actually wound up hosting the All-Star Game in Miami at the Miami Arena. And I'll talk about that in the next segment. You're listening to Locked On Heat.
2: The NBA playoffs are right around the corner. And Locked On NBA is here daily to keep you caught up with all the late season drama. Every Monday, Jackson Gatlin rounds up the three biggest stories around the league –
0: Remember, listen to and subscribe to new and archived episodes of Locked on Heat on Himalaya, as well as on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you're on iTunes, please leave a rating, a review, especially if it's a good one. And I hope you're enjoying the music selection that I've picked for this episode. Wanted to do something a little different and go with some music more indicative of the era. Uh, there were some movies that came out that year, too, that are probably familiar. Goodfellas, I think, is the one that stands out the most. I'm sure I could go down a little bit further as far as uh, what the culture was like, but... <laughs> That seems like such a long time ago. It was 1990. It was uh, pre-grunge for me. That was the, the music that I really identified with most was later on in the early 90s, listening to bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam, who were, at that point in time in 1990, forming around the Seattle area, uh, not really you know, kind of taking off on a national scene until Nirvana wound up having their hit, Smells Like Teen Spirit, a couple years later. I think that was... 91, 92-ish, I want to say. And Pearl Jam released their album 10, their uh, debut album 10 in 1992. was one of the first albums that I wound up buying on CD. That was uh, a long time ago in a very different format. But the 1990 All-Star Game, you know, I just I thought it was such an interesting thing um, that they were hosting the All-Star Game here, even though they didn't have much of a, a solid fan base just yet. They were still trying to earn the trust of the fans, trying to say, look, we're, we're working on it. We're trying to get better. Stick with us. And hopefully you'll come to more games and things of that sort. And and I think some of the appeal as, you know, being a, a, a transient location as far as like the fan base is concerned, you know, you're not going to see the Knicks more than twice a year if you're from New York, and and so do you really want to see a bad Miami Heat team go up against the Cleveland Cavaliers or their interstate quote unquote rival to the north, the Orlando Magic? <sighs> Probably not. Uh, maybe you'd want to see Michael Jordan. That that was obviously a great appeal And the Detroit Pistons. That might be a fun team. Although if you listen to Pistons fans. Of that era, uh, you know, they were disrespected nationally and they didn't get the attention they deserved, although I think that's uh, a little bit over-exaggerated. Moreover, just the 1990 All-Star Game was a good opportunity to bring, you know, fans to South Florida, bring a, a big event there. You know, having covered a couple All-Star Games in the past, I know that a lot of it is building up businesses around here. You you have parties. I don't know how much of that was present, you know, three decades ago now. Um, but, you know, you, you get a lot of people coming down to South Florida watch this game from all over the country, maybe even all over the world. You have events around town, and I think maybe you start to establish South Florida, Miami in particular, maybe tying into Miami Beach as a destination spot, you know, a place where guys can go, and relax, have fun, catch some sun during the All-Star break. Again, this wasn't the All-Star break that it is today. You don't get a week off. You had to go down there. You probably played on Thursday. You went down there over the weekend, and then you came back to play again and a couple days later. Uh, not quite a break the way it is nowadays. The Heat actually had some Representation in nineteen nineties All Star Game, uh, John Sunvold, who was a three point specialist, uh, wound up being participating in the three point shootout, won by Craig Hodges, a guy who should have gotten a lot more shine with the Chicago Bulls documentary, The Last Dance. Uh, I, I don't know. I think he's criticized Michael Jordan uh, pretty publicly in the past for not taking a stronger take uh, and not being more of a a vocal critic of government and things of that sort because Hodges himself was a guy who was very critical of government, refused to uh, go to the, uh, to the White House when the team won a championship uh, at some point during his, his tenure with the Chicago Bulls. He wound up winning three straight three-point shootouts. So he was a phenomenal shooter at a point in time, again, when the three-point shot was somewhat devalued. And, and so he, he uh, you know, he was a, a good complimentary role player. He knew his place, but he just rubbed Jordan in the wrong way because he was probably a little bit too liberal, a little bit too outspoken. And as we saw from the last dance, it doesn't take much to uh, rub Michael the wrong way. He can get pissed off pretty easily and he finds excuses to be pissed off about a lot of things. And he was certainly angry about Hodges. And, and so Hodges didn't even get a single mention that I can recall in all of the 10 part documentaries. So that was somewhat interesting there he'd also had Billy Thompson participate in the dunk contest I I don't remember Thompson's career in Miami at all the 1990 dunk contest was probably a a little bit more well known if nothing else for the fact that Dominique Wilkins won that event Um, he was uh, an of course an impressive dunker having earned the nickname the human highlight reel during his time with the Atlanta Hawks having famously competed against Jordan a year earlier in the slam dunk contest and and losing to Jordan Uh, but Wilkins was a phenomenal dunker score athlete uh, a hell of a player and he wound up winning that slam dunk contest over Kenny Smith not just a broadcaster at that point in time a member of the Sacramento Kings he would go on to participate in the slam dunk contest later on with the Houston Rockets but he was a, a guy who famously participated in not just the slam dunk contest, but also the three-point shootout during the same all-star event. So that was uh, something that no player has ever been able to do. I, I can't imagine a player being able to do that nowadays. I mean, you look at guys that are participating in, in three-point shootouts, specifically – uh, you know Steph Curry or the Curry brothers and and uh, Duncan Robinson. I mean he he's not going to win any awards as a slam dunk contest. Looking at what Derek Jones Jr. can do, that's certainly not in, in part of Robinson's game there. So it's uh it, it's interesting to to know that Smith, someone undersized, was able to participate in both events. Uh, other participants include Keddy Skywalker from the New York Knicks, Sean Kemp early in his career, Scottie Pippen. And, of course, Rec Chapman, who, who, of course, uh, wound up playing for Miami as well. So uh, an interesting lineup there as far as the Slam Dunk participants. That's when the I think this event had a little bit more cachet. It would kind of get a little bit stale and boring as the years go by, though I think this most recent one was as fun as I can recall. I really think it was one of the better uh, competitions, a really, really great group of people, or participants, and uh, I think the, the right winner, Derek Jones, uh, came away with a trophy. So that was something that uh, I thought was really impressive there. As far as the actual All-Star game itself, I, I, part of the reason why I wanted to talk about it, not just because it was an event that came to South Florida, was this Eastern Conference lineup. I mean... <laughs> The starting group, Michael Jordan, Isaiah Thomas, Patrick Ewing, Larry Bird, and Charles Barkley. 80% of the starting lineup for the Dream Team. Uh, uh, reserves include Robert Parrish, Kevin McHale, Joe Dumars, Wilkins, Reggie Miller, Scotty Pippen, and Dennis Rodman. So you've got 12 guys, all of whom are on the Hall of Fame. That's amazing. I, I just I can't imagine that kind of potency in today's game when you look at all-star players. I mean... Jimmy Butler's probably not a Hall of Famer. Bam, it's too early to tell with him, but so on and so forth. I mean, you can go down both rosters and, and you know, there's not a lock to make the Hall of Fame. It's all about you know getting the right votes, et cetera. In and, and, and this era, it was very, very different. That Eastern Conference lineup there, As good as you could possibly get. Again, almost like the dream team itself that would represent the United States in in the Olympic play in 1992. Out in the West, it was a pretty good group too. Hakeem Olajuwon, Magic Johnson, James Worthy, and John Stockton, along with A.C. Green, were the starters In the West, Uh, aside from Green, who wound up playing also with the Miami Heat at some point, um, a pretty good group. I'm a little surprised that Green made it. I I guess he was a solid starter with the the Lakers at that point. Um, You know, they had three Lakers in the starting lineup, mostly because they were a very successful franchise. In 1990, uh, no, 1991, they wound up going to the NBA Finals and losing to Michael Jordan for the first of his three titles. Uh, and then, you know, by that point, the, the team would break up a little bit later when Magic was diagnosed with HIV. And then he would come back uh, and play sometime with the Lakers and then uh, retire yet again. But A.C. Green was, you know, mostly known as being a really good, solid role player. I'm, I'm struggling to recall exactly what his impact was. As far as the, the bench is concerned, they had David Robinson, Clyde Drexler, Chris Mullen and Kevin Johnson, along with Rolando Blackman, who had filled in for Carl Malone, who was hurt, along with Fat Lever. And Tom Chambers, guys, that you probably don't know about. But just interesting to see what these Lions were like. Uh, final score on that All-Star game. Let's see. It was 130 to 113 with the East, understandably, winning that game. Still interesting to, to have that event here, all that star power in South Florida. And, again, I wonder how much of that created the idea of, of Miami being a destination for a lot of these young athletes uh, with some money and being able to Party. I mean, Miami's always or long had a, a kind of uh, vibe about being very relaxed and carefree. It's maybe it's the heat, maybe it's the drugs, maybe it's a combination of both along with the beaches and everything else that you can find in South Florida. But just uh, an interesting event that took place here in South Florida, Miami had their representatives, none of which won the their respective events. But, uh, you know, it was the beginnings of something here, and I think that's really what you're getting out of this two seasons here. You can look at the first three seasons of Miami Heat basketball, and they almost packaged together. They were coached by Rothstein. They didn't have much success. Again, a a nine-game difference between their inaugural season when they were just starting out and their third season in the league. Their fourth season was a little different. Rothstein wound up resigning as head coach, the headlines there was that he he didn't want to put his family through the uh, experience of coaching a, an expansion team any longer. And so he resigned from that post. They were taken over by Kevin Lockery, who had been a, a player with the Washington Bullets or Baltimore Bullets, I think. now that I think about it, and he wound up taking over the team, being a little bit more hard-nosed and wound up getting the team to their first playoff berth in the 1991-92 season. Ninety-one, they wound up drafting Steve Smith. Uh, Out of Michigan State, he was a very versatile point guard, forward type player, another point forward guy who could really do it all. He could handle the ball. He could pass. And and, and him in combination with the shooting ability of Glenn Rice and the interior presence of Ronnie Cycli really made a strong uh, core there moving forward. But that didn't last long either. They wound up breaking that team a couple years later. But still, they were just a couple seasons away from making the playoffs for the first time, uh, the first franchise to actually make that playoffs. And so that was, uh, I think, uh, an impressive hallmark to achieve of those early expansion teams, if you recall, um, The Orlando Magic didn't make the playoffs for some time until they drafted Shaquille O'Neal. The Charlotte Hornets wound up drafting uh, Alonzo Mourning and making it to the playoffs too. Uh, But the Minnesota Timberwolves... just as they do now struggled mightily to make the postseason. So uh, the heat were able to achieve some early success. They weren't able to really sustain it. And they didn't really have much of a clear identity until Pat Riley took over the team in 95. I hope you've enjoyed your trip on the time machine. We'll be taking a ride on it later on this week when I cover the years 2000 and 2010, going into the same kind of detail that I did today. Special thanks go to built bar for sponsoring today's show and make sure to check out rejecting the screen with Noah Kozlov and Adam Stanko, as well as Chad Ford's big board, Now, both on the Lockdown Podcast Network. That's it for today. You can connect with me on Twitter using the hashtag AskElloHeat or email me at LockdownHeat at gmail.com. I'm David Romil signing off and thanking you as always for your support. Hey,
2: Prime members.